in the progression of this discourse, actually after guarding the sense doors, come immediately in the explanation the meditative absorptions. But I first put in mindfulness and clear comprehension because of the fact that it refers to another sutta where that, it says refer to that other sutta, where that is very much explained. Now I haven't finished with mindfulness. I've only given you the first two foundations for mindfulness. But I would like to insert now the meditative states because I find that that, or I think that that is important to give some practical explanation so that those of you who haven't actually had the sufficient concentration may see a, a way of doing that. And I'll return to the mindfulness aspect tomorrow or the next day. Because the mindfulness aspect has four foundations, and I've only expect, explained the first two. Mindfulness of body and mindfulness of feeling. At the time of explaining mindfulness of feeling, I made reference to the four mental aggregates. I'm recapitulating all that in the hope that that will help you to remember to practice it. Not just to remember it, but to practice it. Practice mindfulness of the body, practice mindfulness of the feeling which arises upon all sense contact. Now the the sequence is the morality, the um, from which one where, where if one keeps it one has happiness, then the guarding of the sense doors, then mindfulness and clear comprehension. Now all these are prerequisites for meditation. The more one keeps those going, the moral aspect, the guarding of the sense doors, mindfulness and clear comprehension, the easier meditation is. And that's what retreats are for. That's why we have retreats. So that we can be without the temptation, or at least many of them, not all of them, but there are always some, but without a lot of the temptations of the world which tempt one to use one's senses in an unwise way, where one is tempted and again and again thrown into situations without mindfulness and without any time for checking out clear comprehension of purpose, a clear comprehension of suitability, of being anchored within the Dhamma, and of non-delusion, the four steps of clear comprehension. In a retreat situation, it is much easier. And that needs to be practiced before meditation will amount to anything. Now, obviously, a meditation has calm and insight. Insight is the goal, but calm is the means. And as you will see from this sutta and dozens and dozens of other suttas, without calm, there's no pathway. This is the pathway. Now, after having said those things about guarding the sense doors, mindfulness, and clear comprehension, the next paragraph says, having reached the first jhana, he remains in it, and whatever sensations of lust that he previously had disappear. At that time, there is present a true but subtle perception of the life and happiness born of detachment, and he becomes one who is conscious of this delight and happiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. And this is that training, said the Buddha. Now, obviously, it needs a bit of explanation. But this 
sutta, interestingly enough, approaches exactly the same subject as every other sutta, but on the level of perception which needs to be trained. Different states of consciousness are different ways of perceiving, and since we train ourselves, we do get two different states of consciousness. If we don't do that, we're missing the best part of meditation, and we're missing out on the joy of the spiritual path, which is very joyful even before it reaches its culmination. And therefore, in a totally obvious sense, not something which is could be or would, would be or should be, but in a very obvious sense. Now, having reached the first jhana, first jhana, first meditative absorption, J-H-A-N-A, of which there are eight. He remains in it. Now, in another sutta, the Buddha explains that after any of the jhanas, one can become enlightened, even after the first one, although that is only mentioned in one of them, because usually he mentions all eight, as he does in this one, as a progressive pathway of trained perception long as our perception remains on the marketplace consciousness within that which uh, the world offers, we have no training for our perception. So it remains in it. I think that it would be very um, uh, important now for those of you who did not take the two-week course before we came here <coughs> to say something more practical about the first jhana because hopefully you will all be able to reach it. It is not difficult. I'd like to underline that. It is not difficult, and it is the moment when meditation starts. Everything up to that point has been method. Method is method by any name. No matter how wonderful a method it may be, it's still a method. It starts when we get to first jhana. Now, I like to explain it in this way, that watching the breath is a key method, a key. If you want to unlock a door, you've got to hang on to that key long enough, steady enough, without wavering about, so that you can actually hit the keyhole and unlock the door. Once, having unlocked the door, we enter a mansion with eight chambers. And the first one is called First Jhana. And it's certainly not as beautiful as some of the other chambers. Beautiful in a sense that the consciousness rises to higher and far more subtle levels, where eventually it has a connection with that what is best in universal consciousness. I'll go into that at another time. That is a state of um, also of meditative absorption. Now the first one. The key. Obviously, having unlocked the door and keeping it open, which means continually meditating every day, nicely, we don't need the key. We've got the door open. So eventually one sits down, crosses one's leg, makes oneself comfortable in the sitting position, and is in first jhana, because the door is being kept open. Should one have slammed the door shut, which means stopped to meditate, naturally one needs the key again. One has to fiddle again with the key so long until we can get it into the keyhole again, which is fine. Second time around, it's a little easier because we have an inkling where that keyhole is. We've done it before, but it's foolishness to slam the door once it's open. People do do that, though. 
all of a sudden they get different ideas of what they need to do or should be doing. And pay no attention to the fact that all the Buddhist discourses that talk about the pathway in which includes meditation, now there are discourses that do not include meditation, obviously. But all those that do include meditation, including the Satipatthana Sutta, which is always taken as the example where they are not mentioned, they are mentioned, always mention this as Samar Samadhi, the right concentration. There is no other right concentration. Because right concentration means that one has actually been able to stay with it. Everything else, it's helpful. This is the way to have a mind which is different from the ordinary mind. And wouldn't that be nice? Because the ordinary mind is constantly beset by its own self-inflicted dukkha over and over again. So now having reached it, what means? We have stayed on the breath long enough that, and the thinking has, from a practical standpoint, stopped long enough so that the breath becomes finer and finer, more and more subtle. It can come to the point where we can't find the breath. And most people who are neither, who are not instructed or do it for the first time, then take a deep breath in order to find the breath again. In other words, we've got the key in the keyhole and pull it out again quickly. On the contrary, when the breath has become fine, it means the mind has become fine. When the breath is subtle, the mind is subtle. At that time, we are able to touch upon our own inner purity. Everybody's got it. Unfortunately, it's overlaid and encrusted with views and opinions, thoughts and ideas. And that encrustation, I suppose one should say, makes it impossible to even know it is there. And yet there is an inner yearning in most people, and I would say in all people, but an inner yearning which is known only by those who pay attention to their inner being, to reach a state of purity which promises peace. It does keep that promise also. The more purity, the more peace. It is within each person, it's accessible without thinking without reacting, without having anything that needs to be attended to. So if we have attended to concentration purely, then this becomes available. And because of this first step that we take, the thing that arises within is a very pleasant sensation in Pali, Piti, P-I-T-I, in English very often translated as rapture, which is a very big word for it. One should better say a very delightful sensation. That would make it far more clear. Now, Obviously, we don't meditate in order to get a delightful sensation that's only just getting a foothold in this house, just putting your foot in the door and keeping the door open. That's all it is. Nobody meditates in order to get delightful sensations. It's highly unlikely that intelligent Westerners whose mind and, and whose mind ability has been trained from preschool onwards would ever believe that that's what they're meditating for. This is a constant fear expressed very often in Asia, that one believes now that that is all one's doing. It is quite unreasonable for a Westerner to think that that's all they're doing. 
But in order to get uh, go along this pathway of the concentrated mind, it does arise. And it has enormous um, benefits for us. This delightful sensation of pity is not only the beginning of the concentration path which leads us to higher states of consciousness, but it is also the most effective antidote against ill will, hate, fear, dislike, rejection, resistance, anxiety, worry, and all the rest of those things which are connected with hatefulness. It's the most uh, effective antidote because it is impossible to have any of that while we have this delightful sensation. But there's more to it than that. It has a residual effect. It has a residual effect of the mind knowing that the minute one sits down to meditate, one can re Select and touch upon this delightful state again so that all the unpleasant things which happen to everyone during the day no longer have the kind of impact they used to have. They are not taken that seriously. They are seen to be exactly what they are. Just the up and down, the ebb and tide of all that happens. Even the universe contracts and expands. So why shouldn't these things that we want and that we don't want change from one thing to the next? Because the mind knows it can go to a home base where it is totally protected from all unpleasantness. The unpleasantnesses which arise during the day do not have the sting they used to have. So the residual effect is very important. But its antidote towards ill will is an automatic benefit. Now obviously we still have to work against ill will in our daily lives. If we still believe that our ill will arises justifiably because other people are doing bad things, we haven't started to practice yet. Doesn't matter how often we sit in meditation. Meditation is not the practice. Meditation is one part of practice. And it can become extremely effective. The more we change our states of consciousness, the more effective meditation will be. But if we don't, during our daily living, do something about our ill will, our rejection, our dislike, never mind whether we're successful all the time, but do something about it, we're not practicing. And anyone who meditates always thinks that they're practicing. This is one part of it, and the other part has to go with it. We have to purify in daily living, we have to purify emotion, we have to purify thinking. If we don't, our meditation won't work either. So we have the automatic help through the delightful sensation called PT, but we also see from that how utterly pleasant it is to be without dislike and ill will. And therefore, it will induce us to practice more and better in daily living to substitute from the negative to the positive. The Buddha compared ill will with the bilious disease, the bile comes up. For the one who's got the ill will, not for the one we are angry at. He compared anger with picking up hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody. If we're throwing these hot coals at somebody who's practiced well, they'll surely duck. They won't react. And with that, we are stuck with the hot coals in our bare hands. The foolishness of it all must be apparent. He compared the water pond, which he uses as a comparison very often, 
with one where the wind is strong and the waves go up and down, the wave of our emotions. The wave of the anger emotion are very strong and when they go up very high we see nothing but anger. We don't know anything else anymore. Of course everybody plays the game of justifying anger but it doesn't help. The unpleasant feeling remains within oneself. Justifiable or not justifiable, who cares? Anger doesn't feel good. And because it doesn't feel good, we can tell immediately that it makes bad karma and also that it affects our own mind detrimentally. Because if we don't watch out that our own mind is protected, does not get scratched or dirtied, we will not have the jewel of the mind that we need in order to gain higher states of consciousness. Obviously, in daily living, our antidote for anger and ill will are loving-kindness meditation and loving-kindness action. Loving-kindness meditation is the sort of um, determination, the uh, the way to direct one's mind in the right uh, way. But if it isn't followed by thought, speech, and action, then it hasn't really taken hold. So first we direct the mind in the loving-kindness meditation, and then we try our level best in our thinking processes, in our actions, to follow through with that. These are the antidotes in our daily lives, and we all have plenty of opportunities to practice these things. The sensation that arises, which is delightful, one has to remain in it, as it says here. He remains in it. Now, in the beginning, obviously, because it is the very first uh, jhana, and nothing else has yet been practiced, one remains in it for the length of the meditation time. From a practical standpoint, at the end of either the meditation time or the concentration time, whatever comes first, maybe the concentration disappears and then of course the sensation disappears, or the time is over, one becomes aware of the impermanence of this delightful sensation. Watch it dissolve. This is very important because we are very keen on having our dukkha dissolve. The quicker the better. But we have no interest in having our pleasant sensations dissolve and disappear. So when we can watch it in a state of mind which is calm and collected and realize that this too is impermanent it will give us an understanding of the dukkha nature of all existence, even though it's been extremely pleasant just a moment before. The residual effect is there, but it doesn't have the same strength. The um, pleasant sensations are of various kinds, all of them extremely pleasant and therefore quite clear that this is it. One needn't ask anyone, nor need one ask oneself, is this it or is it, is, isn't it? Because they are mentioned in 17 different kinds, feeling of lightness, tingling, floating, lifting, hair-raising, all sorts of different ones. Sometimes two of them connected, doesn't matter. All of it is quite different from the usual sensation one has within oneself as one walks around, sits around, talks, thinks, reads, or whatever. It's a totally different sensation. It is important to have this automatic assistance system against our ill will because nobody who is not yet a non-returner is without it. What to say of those people who are not even stream entry? 
Ill will is rampant in the world, and that's why the world looks the way it does. And if we can find, through our meditation practice, an automatic system of reducing this ill will, nothing could be more favorable for our happiness. It is the one thing which marks the moment from trying to meditate to meditating. It's that that watershed moment. Now obviously it goes further than this, but this is where it starts. The second step, after one is finished, first impermanence. Second step, recapitulation. What particularly did I do to get there? Now everybody has a personal trigger. The mind, each person's mind, each person's consciousness, is identical. And it will go along the identical pathway. But the triggers which we need to get us there are individual. Some people like the visualization. Some people like drums. Some people like flutes. Some people like choir. Some people like nature, some people um, like to be in a room, some people like to sit straight, some people like to sit more relaxed. The trigger is individual. And because it's individual, we've got to find it. Now obviously, there are many personal ways. I've already mentioned to several of you how to use any of the triggers which are available. But the main thing is to find it yourself. It depends upon the brainwashing we've been having for the past 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. What we believe is good. It also depends upon our character. It depends upon our past activities. It depends upon our body structure. It depends upon our body's health. Many things come into play which could be the right trigger. Now, there are several which are very often used to great advantage, one of them being loving-kindness meditation. That's why I have already said, start every meditation you do with loving-kindness towards yourself. There are people who don't feel a thing. All right? One can try all sorts of other things. One can start, for instance, with dananusanti, which is Mindfulness of one's own generosity, if one has been generous. If one hasn't, let's forget it. If we have a great confidence and love for the Buddha or the Dhamma or the Sangha, that too can be used as a beginning. Buddha Nusanti, remembering the Buddha, remembering the Enlightenment factor, remembering the Dhamma, that which brings to mind the way to for happiness, the way to happiness, or the Sangha, those who have become enlightened. All that can be helpful. We can also, sometimes people remember a loved person, and because of remembering that loved person, put that same feeling towards themselves. Sometimes people recite something which may have meaning for them, whatever it is that they that has meaning for them. Hopefully in their own language, because it has more meaning than not in somebody else's language that they don't understand. One should sit in a way which one feels is conducive. Disciplined but relaxed. Buddha said, one has to be comfortable in mind and body. So the body has to be comfortable and the mind also, having used any of the triggers, whatever it may be. Some people can have gratitude for the great um, opportunity they're having. They can have devotion, respect, 
reverence, any one of these, whatever it is. Something to make the mind comfortable. To stop it from that racing around and rummaging around, trying to look here and there for somebody else that may have the answer. The answer lies in here. Nobody's got it. We've all got it. All we have to do is stop thinking, opinionating, and discriminating. And it's right there. So these are all possibilities of triggers, and you can all make up your own. That's why it's extremely important that if you have reached the first jhana for the first time, or the second time, or the third time, to recapitulate, it's after the impermanence, to recapitulate, how did I get there? What did I actually do? Did I think differently this time? Sit differently? Body has to be comfortable. Eat differently? What did I do? Do less? Do more? Have physical movement before the meditation or not? Anything that might have been conducive to actually feeling at ease. This meditation practice will only work if mind and body are at ease. It's the opposite from being dis-ease. Dis-ease is unease. And as long as there's unease, it isn't happening. This meditation brings ease, inner ease. And that's when we need to start with it and then it, of course, continues. These are more or less all of the practical aspects concerned with that, which the Buddha never mentioned. And one would assume one of two things. Either it got lost or everybody knew it anyway. One could assume that everybody knew it anyway. India was and is today still a country which has great spiritual interest and at the time of the Buddha he was not the inventor of meditation. This is one of the things which is very often misunderstood because he said that this isn't enough. There has to be insight it is understood as if this wasn't to be practiced. He never said that. He said, this has to be practiced. This is the training. But one has to go a step beyond it to insight. And therefore, because he was not the originator of these jhanas, the people in his environment might have been well aware of the practical aspect. He doesn't go into them, but he does say this. Whatever sensations of lust that he previously had disappear. Well, usually the sentence is secluded from sensual desire. Obviously, at the time when we have sensual desire, there's no way we can get into any uh, absorption state. So if, for instance, we're sitting and the mind says, ooh, I can't sit like this, very uncomfortable. We were wishing for more comfort, sensual desire for comfort, physical comfort, no way that we can get into any absorption state. Our mind is concerned with getting comfortable. That's why it is important to be comfortable. And with that, one should also realize that while we can for some time take our mind off discomfort and put it on the meditation subject if it is overriding discomfort we will certainly dislike it and ill will will be rampant within us rather than delightful sensation we're not meditating for ill will either so it's foolishness to foster that we can certainly recognize the fact that unpleasant sensations are just unpleasant sensations and take our mind off them, but most people 
are not able to do that for a long time, for some time, for a short time. If there's any ill will arising, it's much better to move. While not moving constantly at every opportunity, if it becomes so overriding that the dislike and ill will becomes quite marked and noticeable, that one knows one has it, that's the time to move. Nobody's ever become enlightened in his legs. One always becomes enlightened in the mind. And it must never be a mind of ill will. It is impossible. It just doesn't work. And the Buddha never gave such instructions. Never. He never said that one's got to sit there and grit one's teeth. It is never to be found in any discourse. He said, constable in mind and body. Obviously, we don't run away from every slightest discomfort and we'd be shifting around probably 45 minutes out of 45 minutes. But when it becomes the overriding aspect of the sitting, it is no longer useful. And whatever sensation of lust he previously had had disappeared. So there's no desire for anything pleasant, nor is there a rejection of anything unpleasant. Essential desires are not to be taken into account at this time, because otherwise one can't get concentrated. At that time, there is present a true but subtle perception of delight and happiness. A true but subtle uh, perception. So it isn't um, a wild exhilaration. It's certainly true. It's subtle, subtle delight. But with it comes automatically happiness. There are five factors of the first jhana which arise first one after the other and then the last three simultaneously. The first two avitaka-vichara, which means initial application to the meditation subject, and vichara, continued application or sustained application. The first one, the initial application, counteracts our hindrance, our third hindrance of sloth and torpor. As we apply ourselves to the meditation subject, sloth and torpor doesn't have a chance. As we have continued and sustained application on the meditation subject, we are counteracting skeptical doubt. As we have the Southeast Syndrome, because not only do we see that the Buddha knew what he was talking about, but we have self-confidence. It is actually possible. Now, the um, Floss and Topper is compared by the Buddha with being in prison, and skeptical doubt is compared by the Buddha by being in the desert without a road map, without provisions, and going around in circles, and in the end being overrun by bandits. Skeptical doubt must never be removed through somebody else's activity, um, action or words, one must be able to remove it oneself. Because if one hasn't done it by oneself, one is dependent upon the other person, and also the slightest thing that the other person says or does, which does not agree with one's own ideas, will bring the skeptical doubt about again. So there's no way that skeptical doubt will disappear because one believes a single person. It has to be disappearing because of one's own inner experience. It doesn't disappear at this time, but it gets so minimized that one can actually practice. It only disappears for the screen enter. And the three factors of the first jhana which appear simultaneously are the delightful sensation, happiness, and one-pointedness. Piti, Sukha, and Ekagata. Now, Piti, I've already explained the delightful sensation. Obviously, the delightful sensation brings happiness with it, but the physical sensation at this point is stronger 
and remains the meditation subject at this time for the first jhana. One-pointedness is a matter of course. If we're not one-pointed, we're not meditating. So that's a matter of course. One-pointedness is the that factor which is the most important. Now here with the PT we have the counteraction of the second hindrance, ill will. And obviously, because there is no greed or hate at this time, this is one of the strongest purification methods that we can possibly get. If we practice this every day, the purification which takes place within us is automatic, easy, no problem at all, we don't even have to try, it happens by itself, and it will have the result of making it possible to go to higher states of consciousness. The consciousness which is available to a human being on the level of worldliness is only one that is available, and it's the most uninteresting and the one that is most beset with dukkha. There are so many other states of consciousness available to us. So, there is a subtle perception of delight and happiness born of detachment. Detachment from what? Detachment from sensual desire. It's always the same thing. We are detaching ourselves from sensual desire and therefore we are able to get into a meditative absorption. And the change which happens to the mind, from one to that, and from being before that and then being in that, sometimes feels to some people as if the mind has given a flip. It doesn't feel like that for everybody, but sometimes as if there's a flip in the mind. And from having the first thing, where when, the one we know like this, which is quite bothersome, we only know that after the mind has taken that flip and changed itself into something different. Now, mind you, you don't have to look for a flip. I'm only saying that if it's because it sometimes happens to people. Now, this person becomes one who is conscious of this delight and happiness. State of consciousness. The Buddha in this case here, in this sutta, is very interesting. Um, approaches the whole gamut of the teaching from the point of view of states of consciousness trained or untrained. Whereas in other suttas, he approaches exactly the same thing from the point of view of step-by-step gradual training. Here it's from a state of states of consciousness which are being changed. So he, has, he is now conscious of delight and happiness. And delight and happiness, and I think it is maybe useful to say this, the first four jhanas are called the rupa jhanas, which means the fine material jhanas. Now they are called fine material because they have a similarity to the state of consciousness which we know already on this level of worldliness. They are of course far more subtle and they are much, they have far more impact and they are more impressive and they contain a far greater um, they have far greater (coughs) substance of the happiness than what we know, but their main difference is that they are not dependent upon outside triggers. There's nothing we need to see, hear, taste, touch, think or smell. It's only dependent upon concentration. Now, obviously, that makes the world of difference. 
The minute we become independent of our sense contact, we can take them or leave them. We take them when they're there, we leave them when they're not there. It doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. They're very nice when they appear. But being independent of sense contact for one's own happiness and delight means that we have become to a measure free. This is what the whole teaching teaches, freedom. This is one step into freedom. As long as we are depend upon what's going, what we can see and hear, taste, touch, smell, or think, we are constantly concerned with the world. And the world will just not comply with our wishes. It just can't do that. There's five billion of us. Five billion people, and everybody wants something different. How can the world comply? Sometimes we get something pleasant, and sometimes we don't. But because we depend upon our, without, we never feel secure, because we're we're quite aware of the fact that we won't always get it. Sometimes we will, and sometimes we won't. And within that insecurity, everything else happens based upon that insecurity, fear, aggression, dislike, um, restlessness, trying to get something else somewhere else, all that. But having reached this watershed, one becomes truly aware of the fact that it was just depending upon concentration. And that, at least, is only up to oneself. That's only necessary to sit there, do it, have the determination, the willpower, and also the sense of being able to let go. And maybe this is one other thing I should like to mention. In order to meditate properly, one has to let go. There's nothing to get, absolutely nothing. We've already got everything that we can get. And it's never made anybody really happy. We're also aware of that. So we've got to change our attitude and we've got to let go. And when we let go, we can actually touch upon that within us, which is the source of our being. We've got to let go of all the rubbish that is entrusting it. Views, opinions, thoughts, ideas, hopes and remembrances, dislikes and fears and all the rest of it. Now, let me go from a practical standpoint. I'll use this simile and as a symbolism, although there's a certain danger connected with it. because it can be used wrongly, and you'll see in a minute why. When we lie down at night to fall asleep, first we make the body comfortable. It's totally impossible to lie in a cramped position and fall asleep. First we lie down and make the body comfortable. Lie nicely. Then, after that, with the head on the pillow, we've got to stop thinking. Nobody can sleep and think at the same time. So in order to have a night's rest, we've got to let go. Now since we are determined to have this night's rest, mind you, there are some people who have difficulty with that, but most people can do it. And there are some who've got to take a pill. But we're determined to have this night's rest, and we've done it many times. We do know that all we have to do is stop all this thinking and we'll be asleep. The danger lies now in the symbolism which I'm using, that if I say, now let go, that the mind says, right, it must be sleepy time. I've let go. Hmm. Very nice, huh? There is that 
fine point of difference where the letting go is a feeling of connecting to the breath or the meditation subject, being fully in it and allowing the mind to just experience that and not experience the fogginess, the non-consciousness of the sleep. The letting go has to happen if we want to be concentrated, just like the letting go has to happen if we want to go to sleep. It's the same thing, letting go. There is nothing to attend to. All the thoughts which are happening in the meditation concern something out there. And as there's nothing that we can do out there at this point, since we're in here, they're useless. So the letting go aspect is also difficult for another reason. And it's amazing that we actually can fall asleep because we have exactly the same problem there. The letting go of thinking means that we're losing our ego support. We only know we're here when we're thinking. And yet, we're able to fall asleep. Nobody knows where they are when they're asleep. And when we wake up in the morning, it's like coming back brand new. There we are again, all of a sudden. Where were we all this time? We're able to do that every night. We're able to let go of this ego support and just give up and give in completely. Same here. Give up and give in. There's nothing to do and nothing to know. All that we can possibly know is already existing within. It's all in there. we just got to give up and give in. And we'll find out. The whole thing is there. And as we can do that, falling asleep at night, we should be able to do it sitting here, if the body is comfortable. The body's got to be comfortable, but not stretched out on the floor. Because then the mind is absolutely positive, that must mean sleep. Then it knows it for sure. Before that it might have had a little doubt still, sitting in a funny position must can't mean sleeping but when it's lying down then it's sure it must mean sleep so that we have we must uh, desist from this letting go business because of the fact that the ego doesn't have a support it's very difficult sometimes some people can notice it mindfulness makes it possible to notice that that actually the mind is going into concentration it's just going and then, oop, I better think about that yet. That's a real problem. I better got to figure, figure that one out. And then in 10 minutes from now, I'll, I'll get concentrated. So we'll figure that problem out. And again, the mind goes and it's going to get concentrated. And that's, oop, no, I better figure the next one out. There was something else I really didn't know about yet. And so then that goes on again. And that can go the whole hour or two hours. It's not that this problem is so important. It's got nothing to do with anything. It's that the ego is so important. The ego is constantly there playing its own game and saying, I don't want to be cut out of this. If you want to meditate, I'll meditate with you. And as I meditate with you, we've got to know I'm here, so I'm going to give you all the instructions. Now think about this and think about that and do this and do that. And this is the difficulty. So, comfort. Sit comfortably. The... Um, one of the things which is sometimes helpful is, again, these triggers are individual. The results are universal. The triggers are individual. Not to sit military straight. That's a good beginning for concentration. But as the concentration becomes possible, the body can relax. Namely, I don't know if you can tell the difference between this and that. Can you tell the difference? It's exactly one spot here in the back which doesn't have this curve in anymore, but it just relaxes like that. 
It's a spot right underneath the waistline. And that's a relaxing spot. And as the body is relaxed, the mind gets a bit of an input. Come on, let go, relax. In the beginning, it's very good to be very uh, tough with the concentration. But as the concentration happens, relax into it. So the letting go aspect is the overcoming of wanting to have the ego support. And you can remember that you can fall asleep every night. There's no problem. Everybody does. There's no, nobody there to, to... There's the one question that one can't answer yes to. Are you asleep? impossible to say yes you can only say no so this this is the one thing that we we all know how to do and here we have a very similar situation i just read the last sentence about the first jhana now in this way this is the subtle perception of delight and happiness born of detachment he becomes one who is conscious of this delight and happiness in this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. And this is that training, said the Buddha. So one uh, trains oneself to have the perception of delight and happiness and the passing away of the perception that one has trained oneself is the thinking, the ego support system and the sensual uh, desire. These are the perceptions that have passed away at that time. They are not there. So we have a different level at this time. And this is that training, says the Lord. So that will have to suffice for this evening. I have to go to Moswell and teach some meditation to the local ladies who I hope will appear. Any questions? Anything at all? Everything totally clear? Yes? Just a curiosity question. Sometimes in uh, very deep sense of peace, one finds being drawn right into the earth, you know, like going with the weight of the body. It feels like that in the fourth. In the fourth jhana, it feels as if one is being drawn down. But you see, uh, obviously, I mean, you know that the mind isn't going anywhere at all. It just has that deepness. Mm. Yes, it's the fourth jhana. It's, uh, it's really, I usually compare it to the well, going down in the well, but it's just as much going down into the earth. Yes. It's that feeling of really, it has a feeling of the mind going down, down, down into depth. Fourth jhana. In one meditation, you start off first with feeling peaceful? No. Pleasant sensation. Pleasant sensation. Second one we haven't talked about yet. All all what I've been saying was all first jhana. And if you can, yes, you go from one to eight and down to one again. I feel the sensation of stone, like it's a heavy, hardened sometimes. Uh Uh-huh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, that can very well be a beginning of real concentration. Yes. Does it does it feel pleasant or unpleasant? Pleasant. Mm-hmm. Well, I had, uh, had for the first time an experience where I just got the feel I felt very relaxed and just I felt very blind and uh-huh. and I uh, noticed what I had.
had done before to get that stage. And I'd realised something, and I realised that you know, when I, that I wasn't, I was coming less tapped. I was, I was seeing that my, I could see that there was causing my effect quantity suffering, mm-hmm. rangeish. Mm. And I, yeah. You let go of it. And I let go of it through the day. I let go of it. Mm. And I came here to sit down and. And it was. Mm. Good. Very good. Then this glowing feeling should be your meditation subject. You should stay with it. Okay? Very good. And at the end you see the impermanence of it. And then remember how you did it and then you do it again. And tomorrow we'll discuss the second channel. Anything else? Yes. Oh, sure. At the, at the beginning, when one hasn't practiced it yet, it comes and it goes again, almost immediately. And the mind says, oh, that was nice. How am I going to get that back again? And of course, that doesn't work because that's wanting something. And then at another time when one has, you know, practiced a little more, it may stay a while and then disappear again. If one stays on it a while, one sees the impermanence, one recollects how have I done it, and does it again, so that it becomes an established a pathway for meditation, and realizing that this is also impermanent, and also the delight which is not based on sense contact. And from that one realizes then that sense contact is actually an irritation. And then as one goes on with the jhanas, one uses the time for the different jhanas. Continuation tomorrow. Next chapter. Anything else? I will have to leave you.